Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to welcome two special guests, Jason Hollands, Managing Director, Head of Business and Communications at Tilney Best Invest, joins us in the studio, and Steve Wilson, Director at Allen Steel Asset Management, is on the line from Scotland. Now, today we're going to be talking about taking high income from your investments in your 70s. We'll also look at exchange-traded funds, how to invest in Europe, and a quick look at two of the Investors Chronicle's top 100 funds. In this week's Portfolio Clinic, we feature a 78-year-old investor who wants to redeploy the proceeds from the sale of his buy-to-let property into high-yielding assets. He's really aiming for 6% income. Now, um, Jason, you had a look at this portfolio. Do you think that um, aiming for 6% income from your investments in your 70s is a bit too risky, or is that a a decent strategy? I think it's a real challenge. We all know that we're in a climate of very low yields across core asset classes because we've had relentless years of ultra low interest rates, quantitative easing, keeping bond yields low. You know, even with a spike in bond yields over the last month that we've seen, 10-year gilts are yielding less than 2%. Um, and so it's a real struggle to find income. And I think the problem is, is if you get fixated on a headline level of yield, it ultimately it means you're either going to get drawn into more esoteric and riskier investments, possibly actually in some asset classes that where the yields are high because the market's taking a view that those parts of the market are distressed. Or if you do find a, a, a very stable levels of income that are high, for example, in areas like infrastructure, unfortunately, you end up paying a very high price to buy those investments. So, for example, infrastructure investment companies, they say the yields are, are very secure because they're typically under very long term contracts. But you might end up paying a sort of 14 percent premium on those investment companies to invest in them. So I think it, it, it's quite dangerous to get over-focused on a, on, a, on a level of yield that's just so obviously much, much higher than most mainstream asset classes are able to deliver. Well, this, this particular investor is, is um, at the moment fully invested in equities. Um, so he hasn't actually got that, mi- that much diversification across asset classes in his portfolio. Steve, um, what did you think of the um, the diversification element there? Should he be branching out into other assets? Yeah, I think in, in normal circumstances, Moira, um, you would recommend that a client branches out into other asset classes. But as Jason touched on, things like government bonds, which would have been a normal diversification for, for a client, really aren't uh, yielding anything um, of note and certainly not anywhere near 6%. Um, in fact, even Italian government bonds and Greek government bonds, I think Italian government bonds at last look were less than 2%, and, and Greek uh, government bonds uh, less than 5 uh, And, of course, both were, you know, plenty of press coverage about, you know, how Greece are going to exit the euro and how uh, Italy was going to default on, on their debt. So I think you've got to look at what the market's actually giving you. Um, corporate bond yields as well have come down. Um, or as uh, prices have gone up over the last few years. So I think at the moment, equities, in our view, still offer, even for someone in their 70s, 
um, one of the best opportunities for yield. Um, that's also what the uh, the government's intention was, I guess, as well, which was by cutting interest rates over the last uh, four or five years, is pushing people into risk assets, which props up the equity market um, and encourages more equity investors. But there's no doubt that clients at that age should also be mindful of risk. Yeah, Jason, on the equities point, I think you uh, you you want to say something. I think one of my sort of concerns with this as well is there was quite a lot of underlying exposure to commodities. So uh, the investor has a direct holding in Royal Dutch Shell. It happens to be the largest holding in two of his UK equity funds. It's also a big holding in the BlackRock Commodities Income Fund. So there's a lot of exposure there to essentially oil and commodities more generally. And, you know, our own view is actually the backdrop is very weak for commodities. really driven by the fact primarily that China's economy is slowing down. We've obviously seen a big slide in the oil price over the last year as the Saudis are pumping more oil to try and drive the US shale industry uh, out of business. Yes, the oil price has rebounded quite strongly off the very lowest point this year back in January, but actually arguably that might be a bit of a dead cat bounce Mm. because because it looks like the Saudis are intent to keep on pumping more oil. Uh, there's an overhanging global supply. And we may actually see this summer, if, if this deal happens between um, essentially the US and, 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 uh, and key Western European countries and Iran over its nuclear program, that could lead to actually a more Iranian oil supply coming onto the market. So I'd be a bit nervous about having such a high exposure to oil and commodities. And I question whether he need, really needs that direct holding in Royal Dutch Shell given it's already the biggest holding in a number of the funds that he has. I think he may he may actually not have realised how high exposure he has to commodities because um, he obviously had the, the direct holding in Royal Dutch Shell, but he also ha- held several investment trusts that also had that as a high, a high uh, one of their top holdings in the trusts. Um, Steve, this, this issue is really, you need to dig down into your... Um, fund holdings to see what the exposures are, don't you? To yes, you do, and I and I think it's also typical sometimes of clients who maybe have have managed portfolios themselves of buying things, perhaps at the wrong time. Where obviously a few years ago commodities were flavour of the month, as gold and oil and uh, many other um, assets uh, were were booming when China was booming, and the Australian economy was booming um, on the back of it. And uh, it would be interesting to know when they're um, when they'd actually bought those, because there'd possibly be some some pretty big losses in in some of these uh, assets now. Um, but you do have to be mindful of of not just looking at past performance of of um, investment trusts or, or unit trusts oics, um, but actually drill down to see, you know, where they're physically invested, and and more importantly, what the future looks like. And and as Jason rightly says. Um, the commodity cycle may well actually be over for now. Jason, do you agree with that? I do, and I think actually it sort of touches on a very important point. It's very clear that this breeder likes investment companies, investment trusts. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But in the current climate that we're in, where yields are hard to find, one does find that any investment companies or investment trusts that pay high levels of yield, a lot of them are trading at premiums, uh, or um, it's only very narrow discounts. And so that's another potential thing to watch out for. If you're looking to buy now, um, you may end up 
essentially paying over the odds and it actually may be better to look in the open-ended world um, for income investments not as a general rule but just do be aware that a lot of higher yielding investment companies are trading at premiums particularly in certain sectors like operational infrastructure and property normally i would love property as the as the, the optimal way of getting exposure sorry a, a, an investment company is the best way of holding exposure to bricks and mortar assets but you know you are paying very big premiums if you if you're coming in at this point in time that's all all good all good tips there thank you very much um moving on in this week um we reveal our top 50 exchange traded funds in the magazine now the list is designed to be a toolkit of useful and cost-effective building blocks for your portfolio. Um, Exchange-traded funds are passive funds and they're traded on the stock market and they are also growing in popularity among private self-directed investors. In particular, we've seen a lot of readers starting to use them in their portfolios. This, This year's selection includes 29 new products out of the 50 and that reflects lots of increased competition on charges and also a lot of innovation within the industry over the last year. Um, Steve, how, how do you do you use ETFs for your client portfolios and how do you use them? Yeah, over the years we've much preferred really to, to take exposure to active management um, and there's been plenty of debate in the press about whether passives be actives over a certain period of time but, but we've found that we've been able to identify good quality active fund managers yes you pay um, a premium for that in terms of extra annual management charges but over time our, our um, experiences that they've outperformed the 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 differences at the moment really moira is what we're finding is we've been in a rising market pretty much for five or six years now and that passives um, do tracker funds do tend to um, perform very well in a rising market is really when markets fall um, and when there's corrections that um, the uh, ETFs and tracker funds really will fall much further than, than say, um, an active manager who can, you know, for example, over the last few years has maybe been out of the oil stocks that Jason was talking about before, or maybe been out of banks in 2008, whereas a tracker fund or ETF would hold all of those. Um, the biggest concern we have at the moment really is over liquidity in the ETF market because there's a lot of synthetic products out there. Um, Jason, do you do you agree with that sentiment? Do you think that you shouldn't be in passive so much at the moment? I think that I mean, there is a very relevant point. There is clearly a, a, a passive, whether it's a, a fund or an ETF, um, that pursues a traditional passive strategy of following a, a, an index weighted on market uh, weighted to companies based on their market cap. Clearly, is a great way of investing in a, in a strongly rising market because it's fully invested and the costs are low. So, you know, we would typically use these, for example, for exposure in a rising market to areas like the um, U- U.S. larger companies, S and P 500, because that's a very difficult index for active managers to beat. So, uh, they can have a very useful role in the portfolio. But obviously, if you're more cautious in your outlook towards risk assets at the moment, as we are. Um, feeling that you know we've had an incredible run driven by quantitative easing for equities and for bond markets. One has to be a little bit more cautious and certainly of cautious of investments that are essentially just plays on the direction of the market. However, the interesting thing is that the passive industry and the ETF industry leading this is, of course, innovating. And I think a really interesting area to watch is our so-called smart beta products. So there are ETFs out there that instead of 
weighting an index based on the size of companies are weighting those indices on more fundamental factors such as valuation or or dividend cover or balance sheet strength. So right now, for example, for US large cap exposure, you know, we might use a product like the PowerShares Rafi 1000 um, ETF, which is a smart beta product. I, you're not relying on the uh, the judgment of a fund manager to try and pick the best shares in that index, but the weighting is a bit more sophisticated than just holding companies according to their size. So that's a really interesting area to watch, and we're going to see a lot more of these types of products over the coming years. So essentially, they they are use they are managing the the risk for you, um, and in a way that you could never even hope to do yourself by selecting by holding all of those different companies and monitoring it all it's sort of like a way of not having the the pure exposure as you would with the normal tracker fund but you've got some elements of risk management in the in the etf correct i mean i think one of the one of the problems with traditional trackers is notionally you're getting a lot of diversification but of course a track is only as good, whether it's an ETF or a fund, is only as good as the index it follows. And the problem is a lot of indices now are very skewed to a few big companies. FTSE All Share, for example, might have 650 constituents, but a third of your money goes into 10 of them. And it may be you know, over 40% smaller companies, but once it's re-weighted according to company size, you end up with about 3% of your fund invested in those four, in that 40% of the constituents. So actually re-weighting on a, on a, on a more fundamental way is arguably a much more sensible way of gaining passive exposure. Great stuff. Um, I think, sorry, Mario, I was just going to say as well on Jason's point about taking US exposure. I think that's the one market <coughs> that we would look to. Uh, perhaps use an ETF, and, and the S&P 500, for example, is not as uh, skewed towards um, five or six companies as, say, the FTSE 100 is. All right, um, so that would be a good one to to use in your portfolio. Find any an ETF that tracks the S&P 500. Is that right? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, or the Russell 2000 as a, as another example. Um, and, and the American market is much more diversified in terms of uh, different sectors uh, as well, as opposed to the UK, which historically has been financials or oil companies or pharmaceuticals. That Russell 2000 ETF that you just mentioned, that's smaller companies in the US market. Is that is that correct? It, it, it will take exposure to smaller companies, but what investors should be mindful of is that a small company in the US um, is probably equivalent to a mid-cap company over here, or in some cases even a larger cap because um, the size of a of a small cap company in the states is is huge, really. Okay, well, moving um, from the US nearer to to home, um, this week, um, personal finance writer Kate Bearley has been looking at investing in Europe. It's been a volatile two years for for Europe, um, but this year equities have rallied. Is that right, Kate? What have you found out? Um, yeah, well, obviously things things have been very volatile politically and economically across the eurozone for for quite a, quite a while now. Um, obviously, we've had major concerns, very high debt levels across the eurozone, um, and now we've got concerns about whether Greece is going to leave leave the eurozone or not. Um, but yeah, since the beginning of the year, stocks have really rallied, and um, we've had some very positive GDP data. Um, out of the eurozone, which has surprised a lot of people, particularly countries like France, who've come out with some very strong, um, strong results, much to much to many people's surprise. And yes, yeah, stocks um, by April had soared to a 15-year high. So this has been quite a kind of sudden turnaround, and it is connected to the low price of oil 
and to a very weak euro, which has obviously benefited exporters. Um, so, you know, a lot of people saying this is great. This is a sign of, of the recovery really setting in. But then other people saying this has been a very quick rally. We need to question just how sustainable that is. And also, you know, there's a lot of storm clouds on the horizon or things to be concerned about, particularly uh, Grexit. Um, so with all that in mind, thinking about kind of how to invest in the region and, you know, what way to play it. Because um, there is this debate as to whether there are still value opportunities European stocks um, or whether this should be more of a kind of play towards growth and towards long-term capital growth. So the debate is really around whether or not European equities are expensive um, or cheap. I mean when we were at kind of rock bottom in the market there were definitely some value opportunities. Everything was a lot cheaper so managers who were kind of able to sniff out bargains in a way were, were doing quite well or, or there was more of an opportunity for them to do well. Um, but some say now that actually those opportunities have, have kind of dried up now. Now everything is on the rise and this should be more of a play towards what managers are calling kind of growth stocks. So in this case, meaning stocks with long um, long term stock price appreciation. Um, so really big companies with very strong balance sheets, paying good dividends, um, that kind of thing. So and the final thing that we need to think about is what size of stocks do you want to target in Europe? Um, the small caps tend to have more of an exposure to the domestic market, so they will take part more in a in a strong rally. Um, whereas larger caps, I mean, they're they're basically global companies. They derive a lot of revenue from overseas, um, so that's that's almost less of a Europe play than it is global in some situations. I think we should ask our, our experts what they think about um, how to get exposure in Europe. Jason, can I start with you? What would you go for? Well, look, I think, you know, two years ago, uh, private investors were just not interested in European equities. Headlines coming out of Europe, both economically and politically, were relentlessly negative. Um, and there was a lot of value around, particularly versus, uh, you know, US equity markets. I think, you know, what's ha happened is, you know, over the last 12 months, uh, professional investors at first of all became convinced that QE would eventually come to the Eurozone. They were well behind the curve um, compared to say, the US or, or the UK in introducing these stimulus me measures. But I think the market you know, began seeing that as almost inevitable. And you know, that has been the major driver of stock markets right across the globe these last several years. It isn't actually, you know, uh, fundamental factors like GDP growth. It, in fact, corporate results have been relatively de-emphasised. The game in town has been follow where the stimulus programmes are going to happen. And so that has been the big driver in the rally we've seen in European equities over several months uh, because QE is very supportive to risk assets, but also it pushes the currencies down. So I'd say in some ways we can have a debate about whether European equities are good value or whether it's a growth story. The first point is it's all about, um, you know, where the money printing um, machines are turned on. I'd say actually it's a relative game now because, um, uh, you know, uh, European equities are well out of the bargain basement. Yes, certainly not as expensive as the US market, which looks, you know, qu quite extended. Um, but I'd say from here, that sort of easy money on, va on, on value is probably made. There still will be value opportunities at to the stock picking level. This is much more now about can the earnings growth come through as companies benefit from um, being able to borrow cheaply, buy back their shares, which has been the game that's worked in the US market. And of course, um, the, the sort of stimulus you get in the domestic economies from greater consumer spending power because of the, the 
much weaker oil price that we've seen. Steve, what do you think about prospects in Europe? Are you, are you positioning your clients to have exposure there? Yeah, for the last kind of 18 months, um, we've kind of uh, dipped our toe back into the water in Europe. Um, usually the best value is to be had at times when things appear to be at the worst. Um, and of course, a Greek exit has been always topical through, throughout that time. Um, the, the, one of the biggest stimulus, I think, over there, along with Mario Draghi's um, full quantitative easing, was the ability of the Italian Populari banks um, to be able to be listed. They were the equivalent, really, to kind of uh, mutual companies in the UK, if you like, that you couldn't buy shares in. They were able to be listed in kind of January, February time. And believe it or not, there's 600 banks in Italy. Um, and, and our belief was that there would be a lot of merger and acquisition activity this year in that space. And that provides fund managers um, with opportunities in the financial sector to take advantage of that. Um, there's two ways really to play it. Um, as, as you said earlier, the, the small cap space is more of a domestic play. Um, so something like JPM, European Smaller Companies, is one to look at. Um, if it's more a kind of small mid-cap um, uh, and growth approach than Neptune European, uh, which on the face of it performance-wise looks terrible because the fund manager's probably been a bit early, uh, than most, but is now this year, year to date, is, is really um, performed very well. Um, another way to play it is through the large cap, which, as Jason said, is, is um, yes, valuations are expensive, but compared to the US and UK, probably still don't look too uh, too bad. And I'd go for something like Argonaut European Income, which is managed by Ollie Russ, with about 5.6% yield, which would be good for your reader we mentioned earlier, the 78-year-old. Um, and, and there's actually a hedged currency version as well. So some of the fund managers, um, if you're negative on the euro as a currency, um, then as a UK investor, then you can actually buy a hedged currency class. Um, many many fund managers, though, will feel that their portfolio uh, of stocks is diversified enough in terms of companies earning in dollars or euros or pounds that, that they don't need to hedge the currency in the fund. But it is an option. I can see Jason nodding his head on the currency issue. Um, that the hedging has been has been important and may continue to be important. Is that right? Yes, this is yeah. a strategy that we've had in place both for exposure to Japanese equities and European equities. I'd say six months ago, uh, this would have been a very strong view, and it's thankfully played up right. I think it's it's a more nuanced debate at the current point in time because obviously the euro has already depreciated. QE has begun, so um, you know is that fully factored into prices? And of course, the other side of the equation is, well, what's the outlook for sterling? Uh, probably in the short term, better than many expected because of the election outcome being more decisive, and clearly there'll be a sort of more uh, bigger commitment to getting the deficit down. Uh, plus, of course, uh, we're likely to start seeing some sort of uh, monetary tightening here next year. But obviously. The, the other thing to throw into the mix is, you know, if we end up with a um, EU exit uh, referendum early next year, could that put some short term weakness on mm -hmm. sterling? So it's a more nuanced debate. Uh, uh, Which uh, funds would you get? Would yeah, you be well, looking at? So, yeah. so the ones that uh, that we've used in our funds of funds uh, is the Artemis European Opportunities hedged um, version of the fund. I own it personally. I'm sticking with that. Um, I think if you're coming today, it's it, you know it, it's it's um, a tougher call. I would probably, on balance, still hedge, um, uh, just because I think it's more about removing a potential source of risk rather than necessarily having a um, high conviction call on the on the euro versus sterling exchange rate. But 
several months ago. I think that was an easier call to make. Okay. We've also, um, I mean, our managing risk, um, we're, we're also this week looking at a couple of top 100 funds. And they, now, these are actively managed funds on our select list. And the two that we looked at are actually very, very different. Personal Assets Trust is actually a, a wealth preservation vehicle um, which you'd use to try and manage risk within your portfolio. And Leonora Walters, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, has been looking at this um, how has it been performing, Leonora? Um, well, not very well over recent years. It's um, It failed to beat the FTSE All Share over 3 and 5, and its uh, sector average of a 1, 3 and 5. And part of the reason for this was um, a tough 2014 um, due to its equity um, holdings, index-linked bonds, and... Um, gold bullion which also suffered um, from the effects of currency translation used on sterling. That said um, long term the fund has a very good record and its manager Sebastian Line has a good record and it has been picking up. It's beaten the FTSE all share over over one year um, and part of the reason for that is exposure to consumer stocks and index linked bonds um, and um, it tends to do well when markets fall. So, if, you know, if it is going to be a fall, history would suggest it'll do better. I mean, it did very well in 2011. Um, its share price returned 8%, while the um, FTSE All Share fell more than 3%. So I think, it, uh, like a lot of wealth preservation trusts, um, over time, hopefully those returns will stack up. But there's been some changes to its dividend policy, yeah. haven't there? Yeah, it's, um, recently its shareholders have voted to allow the trust to take um, dividends from capital. And the reason they did this was because the board uh, noticed that the trust's um, uh, revenue shortfall um, was um, yeah, not going to necessarily allow it to continue paying dividends at 560 pence. Um, which it wants to maintain. The trust has maintained a raised dividend since 1990 and wants to continue to do this. Now, it had a number of options, and one of them would be for managers buying high-yielding stocks, but they didn't particularly want to go down that route because the high-yielding stocks aren't necessarily the best. So they thought um, taking dividends from capital was the um, the best option. Um, Steve, do you do you ever look at this trust in particular, Personal Assets yeah, Trust? Uh, how, how we've taken exposure, really, I would say, to Sebastian Lyon is, is through his Troy Trojan Fund, which is the OIC, um, as opposed to the Investment Trust, because um, it was only after that, that that Sebastian was given the mandate for, for personal assets. And that uh, OIC is run along similar lines to exactly, personal the, assets. The trust. idea is about wealth preservation, and I think investors should be mindful of that because I think the personal assets just does appear in the global or flexible investment type sector and and again there is such a wide array of different trusts or OICs in those different sectors that you have to again um, drill down to see exactly um, what its objects are, what its aims are and wealth preservation is key and I think in the calendar year 2013 to 14 um, was the first time that Sebastian had actually lost investors money. Um, and what you have to do with, with fund managers really is be patient, which is not easy for, for direct investors um, to be when they look at performance figures. But last year, he was back up and out around 6 or 7% um, again in his, uh, in his OIC and the Troy Trojan Fund. And I think given we live in an in a world where interest rates are 1% to 1.5%, it's a kind of in-between 
you know, someone sitting in cash and someone being a full equity investment um, is not a bad um, uh, dip your toe in the water uh, fund. And if you're getting somewhere around 6 or 7% uh, per annum, I think investors would bite your hand off of that right now. Um, as Lenora said, index link gilts, gold, and, and his equity holdings is really what hurt them in 2013 to 14. Um, I, yes, there's some things over the dividend, but but in our experience, clients actually look at total return over the over the uh, long term as opposed to just simply the dividend yield. Um, Jason, um, do you like the approach that this this trust takes, this uh, wealth preservation approach with uh, with quite a lot of gold still in there? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think you know, as long as you understand the, the, what you've gone into, you, you would expect this trust to have underperformed in the vi- environment we've been in. It's even prior to uh, Troy taking over the management of it. It's long been a contrarian investment vehicle with an emphasis of capital preservation, with a strong sense of not overpaying, and they've stuck to their guns on that. Um, obviously, it has suffered from the gold exposure because uh, gold took a uh, took a real beating, um, you know, in recent years. So that that has particularly hurt. But equally, you know, not being obliged and you know, feeling pressured into buying. St- stocks which the managers believe are overvalued and puffed up by all this money printing um, is it, it is a case of them sticking to what they said they do in the way they manage the money so um, I, I certainly wouldn't panic if I was an investor in this in fact you know if there's a one investment you want to be holding on the day of judgment it's probably this trust <laughs> but it is very cautious and if, if, if actually you want a more you want a more sort of uh, uh, great exposure to to uh, to rising and directional markets. You shouldn't have been in this in the first place. No, well, I mean, on, on rising markets. So let's turn to the other um, IC top hundred fund, which we're going to look at, which is biotech growth. Now, mm. Kate, um, this has really shot the lights out in terms of performance, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it it really has. It's um, it was ten years old uh, last week, and in that time, has kind of topped. Um, the best performing investment trust according to Winter Flood. I mean, it has been impressive. It's returned 721.3% in 10 years um, to, to last week compared to the next one down, which is another biotech fund. It's, it's rival fund, International Biotechnology Trust, which returned just over 440. So the returns have been very impressive. And year by year, it's, it's been good as well, kind of um, double digit growth every year. Um, for the past 10 years, really. Um, it's got exposure to companies like Gilead Sciences, which um, is developing hepatitis C medication, and Illumina, which is, you know, testing machines. Um, and, I mean, it's just, it, yeah, it's a symptom of the fact that biotech has been such a such a rising, such a bullish sector. Um, and, I mean, there, there are quite a few elements that factor into that. Um, the mapping of the human genome apparently has meant that drugs are... Uh, able to be more targeted towards patients, unsuccessful trials can be brought to an end sooner. And generally, these are companies with you know massive revenues. Um, but it it is also risky, and a lot of people are, are nervous about whether this run's going to come to an end. I mean, just looking at the index, the Nasdaq Biotechnology Index, it's incredibly concentrated. It's 118 securities, and the top 10 account for almost 60% of that. Um, and similarly, biotech growth has 41 holdings and the top 10 um, make up just over 55%. So there is a risk there. 
Um, we no we noticed this morning that it's actually trading at a discount now. So mm. investors have probably been looking at the performance and taking their profits. Um, should you hold on with the trust, Jason? What do you think? Well, I think that really depends on your time scale. The, you know, if I was going to invest in this area, this would be the trust I would buy. Um, Orbi Med, who, who manage it, that's all they do is invest in this se sector, both in private equity, actually, but also in, in listed securities. So, you know, there's no doubt they've, they've got fantastic expertise. However, you know, there are real concerns of a bubble, particularly in the US biotech market. And the US is about 90 percent of um, uh, global biotech market cap. So essentially, this is predominantly giving you exposure to US equity markets, which, as I said earlier, is probably the most expensive developed equity market on the earth at the moment and in a very high risk niche sector. Now, there's lots of reasons to get excited about biotech. As you say, there's been some, been some great um, advances in um, uh, 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 medical discovery, um, uh, but it's also been driven, I think, in large part by the, there's been a lot of IPOs, including actually the last couple of years have seen slightly alarming development of companies IPOing before they've even passed um, phase one human trials. So not even having a product available oh. yet. Uh, so really risky stuff. Um, and also that's the symptom, I think, of all this money printing around the world uh, encourages um, excessive risk taking. And I think the fact that you've seen started to see quite a shakeout over April from April in the biotech sector generally, and you're seeing a really well managed trust like this trading at a, 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 for a fairly wide discount given its recent hi history it could be a sign that we're starting to see some of this unravel because I think when investors start panicking on risk assets generally, particularly the US equity market, it could be the higher risk stuff they want to get out of first of all because these, these could end up being very liquid. Steve, is biotech uh, looking too risky for you now, or or is it a theme um, you still like? Yeah, I think as a theme, I think we do still like it. I, I, I totally take Jason's point, and as contrarian investors, it's obviously something you would look at the returns and think, um, obviously people have done very well, and it would be an area for profit-taking. Having said that, um, when you look at Obamacare in the US and the number of uh, insured individuals rapidly increasing, and therefore, that means more utilisation of healthcare and, and biotech products. And there's huge innovation with drug discovery. Um, there's a merger and acquisition frenzy as well, although sometimes that can be a negative indication of a market top. Um, the IPO calendar is full um, at the moment. Um, but if there's talented management and good quality companies out there, which I'm sure there are, I think it's still an area that, that people should be exposed to. One of the other areas in, just in technology is things like cyber security. Um, following uh, the Sony hacking scandal last, last year, um, that's another area that's really taking off. And, and if people don't believe that this biotech thing is going to continue or, or continue to develop, um, they should read Fast Forward, which is a book written by Jim Mellon, um, uh, on how tech and biotech will shape the future. So if, if any of your listeners, readers out there are, are readers of books, that's not a bad one to um, whet the appetite for biotech. Um, if you don't want a direct biotech fund with, with uh, the risks that go with it, then, then you, know, you can take exposure to a couple of U.S. funds, um, ones such as Neptune U.S. Opportunities, which is Felix Wintel is the fund manager, and he actually has a biotech background. He's well exposed to that area, and, and Artemis U.S. Equity, run by Cormac Weldon's another one. Um, so they will they will have biotech just as a theme biotech, uh, within the portfolio within and the portfolio. diversify with against other thematic. Correct. 
So that, that's yeah. a different way to play it, perhaps, for, for some investors. Okay, great. That's a great tip. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to my special guests, Jason Hollands of Tilney Vest Invest and Steve Wilson of Alan Steele Asset Management for all their tips and insight. And thanks also to Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey of the Investors Chronicle. You can read about our top 50 exchange-traded funds and the best funds for a European recovery and tips for investing for high income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 